0: Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. So Kristen, let's blouse, hip hound. Yeah, 21 skidoo. Wait,
0: I don't even know if that's one of the things. Sure it is, nerd. You know what I hate on a
1: date? A bunch of cherry smashes. Yeah, a bunch bunch of my friends are biscuits, though. (laughs) Biscuits. Yeah, they don't like cherry smashes. (laughs) Okay.
0: If people haven't guessed by now, we're talking in slapper slang. Slapper ease. Yes. Um, Of all the slang, while, (laughs) you know, today's generation has text speak, like Mm -hmm. lols and obvi,
1: Obby. It's really obvious
0: adorbs. Toast adorbs toast jelly. Uh we have nothing on flapper slang.
1: Yeah, it really is unrecognizable because at least text speak you kind of it's abbreviations of things. You can yeah. kind of figure it out, but flapper speak, I mean they have dictionaries so that people like us can understand what the heck they were talking about.
0: So why don't we explain a little bit of what we were talking about? For instance, uh, what does let's blouse hip hound mean? That
1: means let's go, person who likes to drink hooch.
0: <laughs> um, and if you are a biscuit, that means that you are a petable flapper, which right. means that people will probably want to kiss you on the mouth. Ooh. But speaking of kisses on the mouth, if you give cherry smashes, that means you have feeble kisses.
1: Right. And nerds means I am amazed. Nerds. Nerds. I might adopt that one, actually. Um,
0: And uh, if you have gotten a divorce recently, guess what? You're
1: out on parole. It's the bunk. It is the bunk. Which means I doubt that. Oh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you doubt that I'm out on parole?
1: Yeah, you're too young for that. <laughs>
0: uh, so today, yes, we are going to talk about Flappers and not just fringy Halloween costumes and right. the Charleston, but actually who these young women were and uh, what was going on to to, to spur these, these these zany gals right. who, who talked in all this jib jab,
1: <laughs> all these changes in society and mm-hmm. in dress lengths and hair lengths and everything. It, it came from a place, and all of this came about after World War One ended. Yes. Um all these terrible things were happening. Um but all of a sudden society started getting better. Um even though so many people had died in World War 1 and a flu outbreak, mm-hmm. millions of people died. Oh yeah, in in World War 1, we have a worldwide an estimated 37 million deaths
0: and injuries. And in the 1918 Spanish Flu pandemic mm. right on the heels of World War 1, 20 to 40 million deaths.
1: Right. And- so after this we see this huge economic surge mm-hmm. and significant social change.
0: Yeah, and kind of this notion for for younger people um, whose peers might have gone off to war and not come back or caught the flu and not recovered, this notion that, hey, you know what? Life is pretty short and unpredictable, mm-hmm. and we'd better have a dang old good time.
1: Right, and not to mention that while all those men were out at war, um, a lot of Educational and employment opportunities open for women. Mm-hmm. So they were they were jumping in the game. Yeah. Uh, and we should talk about two significant pieces of legislation
0: that passed in 1920. And that is the 18th Amendment, also known as the Volstead Act, which outlawed booze mm-hmm. and kicked off prohibition. And then in August of 1920, we have the passage of the 19th Amendment giving
1: women the vote. Right. So all these crazy things are happening. Topsy-turvy. Women are running around voting. Alcohol is driven underground. You have to knock on doors and they open a little slit and you have to say a password if you mm-hmm. want booze. Want a bathtub gin? Yeah. Ooh. Sounds like a stomach problem waiting to happen.
0: <laughs> or a good time <laughs> on the dance floor. That's true. That's true.
1: But yeah, so other things that were going on during this time that really affected the way people thought, hung out with each other, interacted, um the first radio broadcast aired in nineteen twenty, November. Um and more and more people are going to the movies each week. So, you know, everybody's seeing these pop culture representations of young people and it sort of creates this cycle. Mm-hmm. But we'll get to that in a little bit.
0: Um and thanks to and this is oh man, these are quite nice percentages in today's economic climate. Uh the GDP at the time was growing at a rate of four point eight percent annually. And unemployment was hovering at around 3%.
1: Yeah, so a lot of people had more money than they had previously had. Mm -hmm. They were earning a lot more money. And more people were moving to cities. So you had this rise of this young culture that had more money and more leisure time. Because they had things like refrigerators and vacuums.
0: And they had far more mobility. Car ownership from 1919 to 1929, 10 years, jumped from... 6.8 6.8 million to 122 million. Suddenly people had cars and that was uh, a huge force behind this, uh, the emergence of teenage culture mm-hmm. and flappers as well of women being able to get behind the wheel and drive off to who knows where, maybe park for a, for a petting session.
1: Right. Yeah. Um. <laughs>
0: So I thought that kind of creepily. You did.
1: Um, Well, and yeah, you you mentioned uh, dating culture, teenage culture. This definitely changed how how young people courted Mm -hmm. one another. Um, Instead of the young man coming into the parlor and sitting across the room from his beloved, he would just, you know, drive up outside her stoop and honk the horn. And she'd be like, peace out, mama. And, you know, say some slang that I wouldn't understand. She'd be like, this guy's... Really Brillo, which means he lives fast and spends money freely, yeah, we're gonna go barney mug, which is What's that courtship and or petting,
0: oh man, and then their parents would just blanch and wring well, their hands, yeah,
1: they were oh, yeah oh
0: were, dear, oh dear, something terrible is going to the happen. see, but I was <laughs> interested to see that um because because I would have assumed that at the time uh etiquette maven such as Emily Post would have said, hey, you know what, ladies, this is not appropriate for you to drive. Uh, don't, don't get into cars with men. But pretty soon after, um, like early in the 1920s, Emily Post officially said, Hey, you know what? It's fine for women to drive. Yeah. By themselves. It's
1: pretty early on. Yeah. The etiquette queen is telling you that it's okay. There was, so obviously. There okay. was no stopping the emergence of this new woman. Yeah. All of a sudden, young women weren't tied to these lives of piety and domesticity. They didn't immediately go into being from someone's daughter to being someone's wife and taking care of a household. They were pursuing education and employment. They were consuming all types of media, reading a lot of magazines, books, going to movies, listening to the radio. And yeah, they're pretty smart gals, knew a lot about a lot. Well, it seems like that, that, like you said, Caroline,
0: the, um, the reading of books, magazines, going to the movies, uh, listening to the radio. It was that real emergence of mainstream pop culture that everyone could kind of start partaking in at the same time that we have the rise in these, um, in these trends and this shift in attitude. Um, and to describe the new woman who is, we should differentiate the new woman from The flapper, because the new woman is a little bit more of that, um, more politically
1: liberated,
0: right? Sort of like a Margaret
1: Mead character, yeah, anthropologist.
0: Um, and Charlotte Perkins Gilman, who published a magazine called The Forerunner, described the new woman thusly. She says, Uh, here she comes running out of the prison and off the pedestal, chains off, crown off, halo off, just a live woman, a live
1: woman. Sparkling with electricity and sequins because she was a flapper. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the and we also have to differentiate between uh, these new feminists, new new the the new woman and suffragists mm-hmm. because you had the older generation really fighting for the vote. They finally achieved achieved what they've been fighting for for so long. But then you have the flappers and the new woman who were sort of looked down upon by Mm -hmm. some of their suffragist role models as just like, oh, these kids just want to have a good time. Look at all we fought for. And they're just running around in cars going to petting parties. Right. Whereas
0: um, the, the suffrage movement stopped, kind of stopped at that right to vote and kind of wanted everything to the status quo to remain in terms of being a wife, being a mother and taking care of the domestic sphere. But the new woman wanted to really challenge those Gender roles,
1: right? Uh, Professor Catherine Lavender said uh, they, meaning the flappers and the and the new woman, they reacted against the emphasis in the woman movement on female nurturance, selfless service, and moral uplift. They were they were doing good things. They they thought, mm-hmm. but they were having a good time while they did it,
0: right? And there was also this idea of uh, sexual freedom being equated with economic freedom, and those going hand in hand, which again. Uh, the suffrage movement was certainly not so much about sexual
1: politics. Right. And not everybody was very supportive of the new woman. Uh, in 1921, Professor Samuel Holmes was quoted in The New York Times as saying that women who attend college, thereby developing an interest in a career rather than children, were harming the race. And okay. that maybe eventually this would calm down and they'd all go back home and have babies. Sorry, Professor Holmes, did not work that way. Yeah, the Depression might have ruined everybody's good time, but we still kept <laughs> the keys to the car. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the New York Times
0: it really would just uh, did not want to uh, to give the flapper much credit for anything. This is from in 1929, which is after, once the, the flapper has really become a part of... Uh, the the popular culture they write that the flapper had established the feminine right to equal representation in such hitherto masculine fields of smoking, drinking, swearing, petting and disturbing the community peace. Yeah,
1: very snarky New York so Times. So
0: snarky. <laughs>
1: yeah, like good for you women, you are equally
0: annoying now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um and and that's the thing though about the flapper is that uh Yes, she was very focused on on doing what she liked, whether that meant that she was kind of crossing those bounds into more masculine territories of smoking and drinking and other things like that. Uh, but she wasn't as – she didn't really care so much to start any kind of gender revolution. She just really wanted to have a good time, and if that meant, you know, sipping on some gin while she did it uh, – Okay, yeah. having a cigarette, yeah, sing,
1: putting finger waves in her hair
0: and really focusing on looking good, right, and having a fantastic time
1: exactly. um, so I didn't I wasn't aware of where the word flapper came from, but apparently it's it was a word that was borrowed from British slang, meeting just a young woman. Mm-hmm. But in nineteen fifteen, writer h. l. minken, describe this new sort of female identity uh, that was emerging in the U.S., and it's an identity kind of full of contradictions. So this woman or this young woman is innocent but smart, And she consumes modern media, like movies, music, and magazines, like we talked about, that she's exposed to, I mean, willingly, to sexy or racy material, but Mm -hmm. she's not sullied by it.
0: Right. She doesn't, uh, he writes that she saw damaged goods without batting an eye and went away wondering what the row over it was all about.
1: Right. Which damaged goods we referenced in our sex education podcast. And what was damaged goods, Caroline? It was all about the dangers of having sex.
0: Right. It was the first sex ed movie that was really produced in the United States all
1: about the, uh, the soldier who Mm -hmm. contracted syphilis and passed on to his baby and then killed himself. So kind of, you can see how that movie could be kind of controversial. (laughs) But the flapper was like, she was like, whatever. Hey, yeah, I'm so kiddo.
0: (laughs) So I think a good way to differentiate them between that new woman uh might be in the form of of media consume, for instance, the new woman would be all about the uh the textbooks and the pamphlets and uh more the more socially minded literature of the day, whereas uh the flappers media was all just give me give me movies, give me magazines give me yeah tabloids
1: pop. about clara bow uh-huh all that stuff uh Vanity Fair editor Frank Crowenshield in nineteen fifteen characterized the flapper. Uh, saying that his dinner companion, and yeah, this is interesting, this quote, he said his dinner companion was very well-informed. I put it down naturally enough to wide reading. It couldn't all come from experience. Their little bodies wouldn't hold so much, so thanks. Because <laughs> she couldn't possibly, like, you know, have life experiences and learn all that stuff. But, it, you know, it was clear that these women were uh, people all over characterized them as, as big readers and mm-hmm. wanted to experience a lot of stuff. And then
0: in 1920, the movie The Flapper, starring Olive Thomas, really introduces this female figure into mainstream culture. Although Olive Thomas, while she did play that original flapper, would soon be overshadowed by Clara Bow, whose 1927 It Girl really defined... Um, who who these women would want to be.
1: Right, yeah. We still I mean, we still use the the term it girl mm-hmm. for for young starlets, and it was just sexual allure. Yes. And and how everybody wanted it. And so it's interesting how the the films of the time really created this consumer culture, but also sort of use the consumer culture. So oh, yeah. it was really a cycle because they showed beautiful young women on screen having a great time using such and such brand of cigarettes or soap or whatever. And it's like, don't you want to be like this woman Yeah and so people would go out and and participate in these flapper, contests and pageants and stuff that you'd win something if you were the one who looked most like the starlet mm-hmm. in the movie
0: um and one flapper the real life flapper uh that we have to talk about is zelda fitzgerald Ah, oh, poor zelda <sighs> oh zelda um sad sad life she did have a sad life but at first it was pretty glamorous um she was a debutante in alabama where she met f scott Fitzgerald, and those two became just the, the couple du jour. Right, the golden couple. Yeah. Parties, drinking, drinking, um, traveling around the world. And, um, it, it was interesting. There was a shift around the time that Zelda and F. Scott started be- to become so popular, which was, uh, with the publication of This Side of Paradise. Um, there was a shift in magazine. Content from just general news articles to all of a sudden you have this surge in personal profiles. So even among more um, high-minded media, not just magazines like Variety, um, you see this shift from just general news and information to more celebrity and
1: Mm self-obsession. And part of that obsession was with the fashion of the time, Mm -hmm. which, I mean... uh, That's one of the most easily identifiable eras in terms of fashion. Oh yeah. Because you have, you go from having high necked clothes and with the, with the hemline touching the floor Mm -hmm. and having very sensible shoes and your long hair is tied up in a bun. Like, like the Gibson girls of the time. Exactly. Um, yeah, all of a sudden it became all about straight shifts. You know, some were sparkly if you're going out dancing. Uh, the hemline was cut so that it would be easier to dance. You're showing off your bare arms. You're not mm-hmm. wearing dark wool stockings. You're putting on your, your silken hose. Right. And you might even roll down your, um, your
0: hosiery below the knees to help accommodate dancing. And the straight cut dresses at the time also made it easier for any, uh, young woman no matter whether she's rich or poor, to make her own flapper fashion. Whereas with those, you know, more elegant Gibson girl kind of outfits, it was it was definitely more restricted to the middle and upper classes.
1: Right. And we can't forget the hair. Oh, yeah. The hair is such a big deal. Mm -hmm. Everybody starts chopping their hair off and like slicking it down and having those two little curls that came out of the side and then putting a cloche hat on top. That's right. And on a side note... Uh, This is also the
0: time when, while, yes, plenty of women were still making their own dresses at home, but you also have ready-made clothes becoming more of the standard. And because of that, this is when sizing comes into play, which is still... Such a massive frustration know. in women's fashion, Um, but uh, but standard sizing starts happening, and then you also have uh, the popularization of dieting,
1: right? Because people want to be a two instead of a six or whatever, right? Yeah, and they want to fit in the lower numbers. And that thin, boyish figure was in. Women would even bind their breasts just to
0: make sure that they didn't have that that hourglass shape of the Gibson girl.
1: And plus, they didn't want to be bouncing around when they're dancing, <laughs>
0: right? Just like an early sports bra, basically. <laughs> Um, and even down to the shoes, they wore T-straps and buckled heels that were low enough to accommodate dancing. Um, but, uh, this was also the time when we started wearing bras instead of corsets, but not without um, some people kind of freaking out about the implications of women not wearing corsets anymore. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. <laughs> this is this is a, a pretty intense example from Leonard Florsheim, who is the president of the Corset and Brasier Association. Uh-huh. And in 1921, he wrote an article <laughs> titled The Evils of the No Corset Fad, in which he used racial stereotypes to persuade middle and upper class white women that going corsetless was much the same as going wild. My goodness, Leonard.
1: How hateful.
0: That is horrifying.
1: Yeah, just, geez, lay off.
0: Yeah, but the flappers did not give a yeah, hoot they, about they, Leonard Floresheim. They were not advice. given to
1: giving hoots. That's right.
0: But Leonard Floresheim, of course, was not the only um, adult non-flapper who was really concerned about these young women and the moral implications of of their lifestyles. Mm-hmm. I mean, parents of the day, not only were freaking out about jazz, there was this one, one article that we found, I think in, uh, it might have been in Harper's, um, but the, the title was something along the lines of, does jazz put the sin in syncopation? Uh-huh. Yes. And these flappers were listening to jazz music and, and dancing to all this, this new music and, uh, smoking cigarettes and petting in back seats of cars and, yeah. and parents, Oh man, they didn't know what to do. I know. But, um, Ellen Wells Page in December 1922 wrote A Flapper's Appeal to Parents, which Caroline, you aptly describe as <laughs> the jazz age version of parents just don't understand.
1: Yeah, it's the most, it's like such a whiny, it totally reminds me of some melodramatic, whiny young woman who's just like, oh goodness, Times are changing, and we need guidance from you. You just have to understand that we're different. We
0: need your support. Right. At first, she starts out explaining differences among flappers. Um, and apparently, there were three main categories. I had no idea. Of flappers. The semi-flapper, which Ellen Wells Page, the author, describes herself as one of those. Yeah. Because she didn't really smoke very many cigarettes. This is
1: like this is like hipsters who won't admit they're hipsters. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> I'm not a hipster. I just dress like this. I don't and know. And I just hang out at these places. I don't own that much vinyl. She's while. like, just because I dress like like a flapper doesn't mean I am one. I'm only a semi flapper.
0: But then there from the semi flapper you have just the standard flapper and then there is the super flapper who would just I mean, I don't know if she ever even came home.
1: <laughs> She's just riding around in cars for days. <laughs> yeah. Drinking bathtub gin. She had the bathtub, bathtub gin in the car. She's yeah. going
0: crazy. She never took off that cloche hat. No, she didn't. Uh, but I did like her observation that petting is gradually growing out of fashion through being overworked, which seems to apply to me <laughs> that, uh, that making out essentially was just that people were doing it so often in so many back seats that it was just becoming, uh, little just stale. like who does
1: that anymore well she also she also wrote about jazz as if jazz were something that would eventually go out of style she's like yeah we're listening to it now but that's only until it's not cool anymore how little
0: she knew how
1: little she knew but she did end up appealing
0: to parents to to understand and embrace the flapper lifestyle and provide some kind of guidance instead of just rebuking, um, all of the, the, the flapper ways. Although at one point she, she, uh, encourages fathers to, to, to quote, make love to their daughters.
1: It's a figure
0: of <laughs> It was totally a figure of time. speech. Um, but I think that only, uh, yeah, that only hammers home the, just the drama. Cause there, I mean, the, even though this is one essay that we're talking about, this was really, Ellen Wells' pages essay sums up just the—I don't know—the everybody's the confused.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Everything's changing. Mm-hmm. You just gotta hold on for the ride. But it's funny. Speaking of of using making love, it's so different. It, it meant something very different than it does now, right? And that phrase—I was—I first found it in um *The Age of Innocence* by Edith Wharton, for which she won a Pulitzer Prize. She wrote it in 1921. And she was the first woman, in fact, to win
0: a Pulitzer Prize. Yeah. Another example of, uh, that, that new woman. Yeah. Emerging. So, I don't know. To me, the flapper, the, the place of flappers in American history isn't so much about feminism because she's sort of this, uh, this offshoot of the new woman. She kind of takes the, the social benefits that new women were, um, were earning and, but really just kind of ignores all of the heady stuff. Yeah. And has a good time. So I kind of consider flappers as the first real bachelors in American society. Hmm. Because bachelors, the whole bachelor culture is generally apolitical. Right. And they're just enjoying their, their singledom. Which yeah. is what flappers were doing.
1: Well, I mean, it's so, think of teenage culture now. Yeah. It's, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I, not that there aren't teenagers who are interested in, you know, learning and pull up politics and stuff, but. But
0: that whole pop culture yeah, phenomenon, fun. and I think that, yeah, again, like flappers too were one of the first big examples of how pop culture can influence those trends and that kind of back and forth cycle that you mentioned between, you know, the seeing things on screen and then mimicking them in real life and then, you know, screen taking cues from real life. And it right. all goes around and around exactly. in a giant vat of consumer culture <laughs> mm. and now we're in a recession. And speaking of recessions, on October 29th, 1929, the stock market crashed and the flapper party came to a close. Right. Put the kibosh on that. Right. But those major ideas of, uh, you know, the, the the new women had, had earned their freedom, right. more or less.
1: Skirts stayed relatively short. Mm-hmm. Cars were still on the road. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so good for you, flapper women. So I hope that you have enjoyed this a little historical insight
0: into the role of flappers. And the next time, you know, if you're uh, thinking of way ahead about Halloween next year um, or next time you see the flapper costume, just remember, there's more there's more to flappers than just fringe and cigarette holders. Exactly. A lot more like haircuts. (laughs) Right. And movie watching. So if you have anything you'd like to send our way about flappers and your take on them, momstuffathowstuffworks.com is the address. And I've got an email here from Bela in response to our podcast on trailblazing lesbians. And she writes, I wanted to mention Dr. Dorothy Anderson, who was my grandmother's college roommate at Mount Holyoke in the 1920s. Andy, as she was known, never came out, but she also never married, and she routinely wore men's suits and was generally seen as very masculine or butch. Andy went on to identify and to develop the first treatments for cystic fibrosis. My mother once asked my grandmother whether she had ever realized that Andy was probably a lesbian, and my fairly proper grandmother responded, oh, I think she had a boyfriend once. (laughs) Anyway, there was a family legend that Andy sometimes tagged along on my grandmother's dates to sit at a table nearby and inspect the young men courting her friend. In later life, Andy kept a small recreational farm in upstate New York where my mother and her siblings all spent summers growing up, and as Andy had no children of her own, she left the farm to my aunt when she died. While Andy was not publicly known as a lesbian in her lifetime, we firmly believe that she was gay and that her close friendships with my mother's family constituted her own surrogate family. Interesting. Yeah, thank you, Baila. A bit
1: of history. Mm -hmm. I have an email from Damien in response to our Bisexual Men podcast. And he said that you may be interested to learn that there is another designation gaining slow recognition amongst individuals who can feel both deep emotional and sexual connections to those of both sexes. The term is homosexual, an awkward contradiction indicating a postmodern perspective on sexuality, wherein the individual finds themselves not driven by sexual motivations and attractions, but by characteristics and traits of the genderless individual. Of course, the concept is not easily understood. Yes, it has made my own romantic, personal, and social life more awkward than perhaps my gay, heterosexual, or even bisexual counterparts. Most people read it with both fear and maybe even a bit of disgust as though I'm itching to potentially get with everything that moves or that I could just suddenly switch at any time. Of course, I do recognize a good-looking man or woman in the room. In reality, however, real attraction begins for me not as sexual at all but as an emotional and intellectual connection. Only after identifying someone as a potential mental partner have I been truly interested in exploring a potential physical side.
0: Thanks. So thanks to all of you who have written in at at momstuffathowstuffworks.com. And as always, you can hit us up on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. And you can check out the blog during the week and read the article, How Flappers Work, by, hey, me. That girl right there. Yep, me, at HowStuffWorks. .com. You're a regular Brillo. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Forks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Forks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?